more into the continuation of our trip through the Bible. Uh, today, I'm more of in honor for those who are in first service. If you have second service, it'll be a little surprise. First service, they honored Steve Sherman. I actually wore my Health Council International T-shirt for Steve. Uh, Steve was actually one of the founding members in 1979 uh, in Guatemala and the That's where he met Magda. Magda was the translator that they hired. Uh, Steve was the evangelist. There were several of my friends I now know that were the doctors and the nurses. Uh, and yeah, so they met, and like a good evangelism, evangelist, he managed to convince her to marry him. Uh, and so uh, I think they got married in 84, 83, something like that. Then they went to the Belize, then they went to Guatemala City, which is where I met them. Uh, and then they went out to the what's called the Boca Coast, the Good Coast, where Hell Towns has been since. And then Steve came back in 01, 02. I feel partially responsible for that. Uh, I was deacon of uh, missions in the mid-90s, and Dave Matteron decided that Steve needed a car. You can't buy new cars in Guatemala in those days. So we found a Mazuzu Trooper up here, and the guy would sell us cheap. We bought it, drove it to the front of the church at the old thing, parked it in front of everyone, and said, we need to send this to Steve. Being Otter Creek, I said, no problem, we wrote it. We shipped it to Steve. We didn't realize we were shipping him the nicest car in Guatemala City. <laughs> and so uh, he actually, Steve actually got shot once in the hand. It's because he was driving that car and someone carjacked him. So we, we felt somewhat, David and I felt somewhat responsible for that since we sent the car. Uh, and then lots of other things. But he's been back here since 01. He retires, I guess, officially at the end of the month, which is Tuesday? Monday. Monday. So, 38 years working for Otter Creek. Uh, done a lot of stuff around the world, done a lot of good stuff. He's been an associate professor at Lipscomb for probably, what, 10 or 12 years? Uh, he came back in 01, so. Maybe. Well, no. He, I mean, he might have been. He, he was mission in residence there for a long time. Right. And now he is the direct director of the Peugeot Center for Engineering yeah. Missions. Which, if you look we, in the first service, you saw lots of pictures of what they do, which is water. And then Chikandi Health, which I'm on the board of in Africa, Peugeot has come in with electrical systems, water systems for us. In fact, Steve's coming this May with the engineering team to Africa. Uh, so it'll be an interesting trip. It's the first time in that part of Africa. All right, let's talk a little bit about our next book, Titus. Last week we did First Timothy, we, so we, we explained to everyone everything you need to know about gender relations, elders, deacons, uh, slavery, widows, etc. Right? Everyone good with that? <laughs> More or less? All right. We're doing the same thing this week. Uh, Timothy and Titus were written about the same time. Uh, Paul the apostle, is the teacher, is the teacher, he's the writer. Uh, it's written to Titus. Uh, about between 63 and 65. We think it's actually before 65. In July of 64 is the, Rome, is the fire of Rome. After that point, Christians become persecuted for the first time for being Christians. Because Nero fi figures out when there's a problem, you've got to find someone to blame besides yourself. Right? He's a politician. Uh, and so 
he figures out who is the least most powerful group in the, in the Roman Empire, the Christians. The Jews don't claim them. And he has just learned that they are actually separate from the Christians after he arrested Paul and had the trial. So in July 64, the Christians become persecuted for burning down Rome. Did the Christians burn down Rome? No, we did not. Sounds like Putin. Yeah. When, 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 you're, in, when you're in trouble in your home country, a good external enemy is really good as a politician. And so he believes Christians. So none of this shows up in this letter. So we're pretty sure this is pre-July 64. But not very far, because Paul's about to get arrested again. Uh, so when do you have Paul figure of Paul being killed? Probably like 67, 66, 67. I mean, Arrhenius, doesn't Arrhenius say 64, summer of 64? Yeah, but they have, the, the problem is they have dates problems. Okay, so you're discounting that. That's, that's well, it's, 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 let's go ballpark. You know, because they, they dated according to the emperor. Okay. They, you know, they didn't date back to Jesus. They kind of dated the emperor, and then we, a thousand years later, switch all the timing out. Like the reason, why did all your bumper stickers say 8033 is when Jesus went up to heaven? Somebody had bad math. Someone had bad math about 1100. Uh, remember, he was, a, he was a monk, I'm blanking on his Bishop name. Bishop Usher. Usher. He tried to count everything back and miscounted. And so Jesus was really born like 84, 84, BC4. Because we know Herod the Great is dead in BC, late 3. Herod the Great shows up in the birth story, we're pretty sure it was not zero. And besides, there is no year zero. You go from negative one to BC one to 81. All those things confused the guys in the Middle Ages when they set up the, the dating. So we think, we're pretty sure that Rome burned in what we would call AD 64. Paul and Peter are going to be killed by the Roman Empire sometime in a year after that. And again, it's Nero's in trouble. Uh, Nero dies, slash is poisoned, slash commits suicide in AD 68. Uh, so he's in, try, he's in political trouble at this point, uh, which doesn't have a lot to do with this letter, other than the fact that you're gonna, you'll still see some things Paul talks about. Uh, but he really talks, he's talking to Titus, Timothy last week, Titus, they're, they're a part of his team that he sends out to church plant. To church plant is not the right word. Uh, mature churches that Paul's already planted with these guys in various locations. Uh, and Titus is in the Isle of Crete. Uh, and again, what was the theme of 1 Timothy? What problem was Paul dealing with? Anybody? Women. Not women. <laughs> we think women are false teachers. Timothy Titus is about false teachers. We read Timothy, and what we think about Timothy is woman's role in the church and elders. That's not what Paul's talking Paul's talking about false teachers. How do you, when there are false teachers, how do you deal with that? That's why he gets into women's role in the church and elders. Same thing for Titus. Titus is about false teachers. When you structure a church, how do you do it in a way that you can deal with false teaching? False teaching is going to show up. The question is, how do you deal with it? Come on. Here we go. All right, before we go on, important parts. Uh, sometimes, as 
the Church of Christ, we have majored in the minors and ignored the majors. When, when the Pharisees asked Jesus what's the most important thing, that's his answer. That's the answer Paul is giving when he's traveling around. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is like it. Love the neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So it's about love, mercy, and justice. When you get to heaven, there's going to be a final exam. This is the final exam. God is not going to look at you and say, all right, based on your biblical knowledge, do you think I'm amillennialist, premillennialist, postmillennialist, dispensational postmillennialist? you got one in four chance. Go. That's not going to be the final exam. Jesus already told us what the final exam is. So you have essential things, you have important things. Important things are like Titus and Timothy. How do you structure the church in order that the essential things stay essential? And then you have, on the outer ring, you have opinionated things, which has ruptured the church for centuries. What kind is church music? You put a kitchen in. Now, what type of music do we want? Do we want, you know, we think we fought about music. Go back to the 1800s, 1700s. You know, this guy Bach was writing stuff. That's, that is too radical. You cannot play Bach in the church. You cannot play Beethoven in the church. We look at that and go like, Beethoven? You know, we sing songs with Beethoven's melodies. Those are, those are traditional songs. The time Beethoven wrote it, he could, they couldn't play that in the church because it was too new, it was too radical. You know, all the way back. There's always a thing of things that always occur that we spend more time on than the essential. How are we dealing with love, mercy, and justice? That's the message Paul is sending to these guys. Say, concentrate love, mercy, justice. Now, when we structure the church, I structure the way that this always stays the main uh, emphasis of the church. That was a little sideways from Timothy, but or Titus. All right, so who is Titus? Uh, Titus is actually, interestingly, not referred to at all in Acts. Luke goes to Acts and tells the story of Peter, Paul, and the early church. He never mentions Titus. He's mentioned 13 other times in other books. So he is clearly an associate of Paul's. Uh, Titus actually causes, when Paul goes back and gets arrested in, in Jerusalem, Titus is the cause of the arrest, because Titus is a Gentile. And they think, they confuse Timothy and Titus. They think Titus was taken into the temple. And so the Jews have a riot, which is, Jews riot a lot. Every time Paul shows up, the Jews end up in a riot. Uh, he doesn't take Titus into the temple. He takes Timothy. So anyways, he's also the guy that in Corinthians, Paul gives the money that everyone raises to take back to Jerusalem. So he's clearly a responsible person. Uh, and then uh, we, Paul gets out of this Roman imprisonment. He and Titus go to Crete. Paul leaves, goes up to Ephesus, drops Timothy off, goes up to Macedonia. And so what he's doing is he writes a letter to Timothy, he writes a letter to Titus saying, hey, here's some things based on my, what happened when I was in Crete, what happened when I was in Ephesus, that you may need to tighten up or fix in the church. That's Titus. All right, pictures. Crete 
is this island down here. This is Corinth right here. Uh, Ephesus is, this is a modern picture. Ephesus is, is this little indentation right here is where Ephesus is at. In the first century, this island was very important because when you sail across the sea, and if you read at the end of Acts, Paul gets shipwrecked on Crete and spends the winter, winter in Crete. Uh, so a lot of ships would sail there and re-provision or wait till the weather was right to sail on to Rome. Uh, so it's a, it's a busy area. Uh, clearly, Paul established lots of churches there. And in Acts, he convinces, I think, that the governor essentially to become a Christian. So it's a very, uh, again, a very important place. That's, that's where he drops Titus off at for this book. All right, let's roll into Titus. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge and the truth that leads to godliness. He's telling, this is Paul. He's telling me, why am I writing this letter? Uh, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, this is important, we're going to get to that in a second, promised from before the beginning of time, which now in his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Again, Paul has run on sentences. All your English teachers would be very, very unhappy with Paul. He's got, I don't have any comments. You know, one, one hyphen and four commas in there. Run on. Uh, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father of Jesus Christ. Savior. This is a typical Paul reading. Uh, he jumps right into it. The reason I left you in Crete Crete is that you may put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul had clearly told him to go through and help the churches mature and establish leadership. And then he goes into the description of elders. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he may encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Remember, there are, even this early on in church history, you have false teachers arising saying, Paul told you this, but he didn't tell you everything. I've got more to tell you that you need to learn to be a true Christian. Uh, the reason I highlighted the, the men, Randall brought it up last week, same thing. These are not in the Greek. When Paul says this, he does, the word he is a, there's a difference between uh, to interpret something and to translate. Translate, you just take words and move language to language. Interpret, you try to figure out what he meant and put it in English so that it is understandable. This is interpretation because in the Greek, the he's are not there. Uh, we had a things last Sunday afternoon talking a lot about this with John Mark Hicks uh, who talked about the fact that yeah these are in 
both last time in Timothy, because Randall brought it up, so I brought, there's the Timothy part. All those red words are not in the Greek. So it has to do with how do you interpret what Paul says and put it in an English sentence that is understandable. And so it's also important to understand when you create theology as a personal Christian, as a church, understand that your theology is based on something more than a single word. Uh, there's a lot of that. There, what's important to God based on the Bible? Mercy, love, and justice. The only place elders are talked about at all as criteria are here at Timothy. So I, it's important not to over... You have to understand these passages. It's also important not to overstate these passages and say, here are the rules that Paul laid down when the Greek is not 100% clear. It's clear what type of person he's describing, a person of integrity who is a good parent, who runs their household well. Uh, and there are, if you get on the internet or search or read different Bible, there are lots of discussion right now, especially is Paul restricting this to men only? Is he just saying this because in a patriarchal society in Greece, in Crete would be Greece, that the odds of having female elders are very low? Or is he forever restricting this to just men? And then when he talks about men, is this a checklist in which you need to hit everything on here, in which case we never have elders, because no one hits everything. Uh, or is this a character description of which the type of person you need to make as an elder? If it's a character description, you will see people who write, since the one and only thing he talks about is uh, faithful to his wife, which we're going to get to in a second, uh, cannot women who meet these criteria also be elders? And so part of what we have to look at is history. We've got to look at kind of what occurred, what, what writings were in the early church fathers. Uh, but you can see both Timothy and Titus, it's the same description. Uh, there's actually comparing, comparing to, what, question, question, yes. question. Yeah. So Titus and Timothy, what is their office? Are they preacher? Are they missionary? What are they? If, if there are, let's call it, elsewhere it says there are four spiritual gifts. There are uh, apostles, there are prophets, there are evangelists, and then there are pastor teachers. Pastor teachers is another way of saying elder. Uh, what would I consider Timothy and Titus? Probably evangelist. So we could even back this up further and say, is this passage the formula for how elders are selected? Exactly. That's that's important that when you create your theology, understand what's going on. This is, I, I think. And is there any other example on how they're appointed? Uh, so what we have, not a lot. Th this is it in the New Testament. We know there are elders because Paul meets them on. When you go through Acts, he meets the elders in Ephesus. Say, and they come by and say, you know, don't go to Rome. We want you to stay here. 
When he goes to Antioch, the elders meet him and say, don't go to Rome, we want you to stay here. When he goes to Jerusalem, he meets the elders. So we know there are elders around. And so clearly they know what they're saying. And that's, that's my point of saying we better be careful in how we create theology because, I mean, these are, I think these are good uh, understandings of qualifications, but I think we need to be very careful to say these are the only qualifications. In our history as a church, uh, big, little C, big C, I don't know. The, the group that's the restoration movement that comes to Church of Christ, for elders, we have put a huge thing on one thing. Husband and one wife. Husband and one wife. There has been a lot, because I remember growing up, discussions of, we yeah, had a great... children. Right, yeah, yeah, children. Are you childless? Uh, we had, you know, when I was growing up, and I remember one of the first, my first memories in the 60s, we had a, a man who was a widow-er, because his wife died. Great guy. They wanted to put him up for elder. There was like a 20-week conversation about this. He's not currently married. Paul says you got to be married. Paul actually doesn't say, we're going to get to that in about two seconds. He doesn't say you have to be married. Uh, but, you know, that was that discussion. And then, you know, we had another one a little later on that first wife had died and he remarried. Disqualification. You know, throw the penalty flag right there. Uh, and also children is the word tecton, which is only singular. It's not, it's not a plural form. Right. So, so you can only, you can only have one child, right. according to this. <laughs> you have more than one child, you're disqualified. Uh, so it's very important that when you read these, you understand the culture in which they are written. If you have more than one kid, you might want to disqualify yourself. yourself. <laughs> That's an out. That's right. So yeah, so it's a very, you have to be very careful when you create theology around these discussions to understand what is Paul actually saying, to whom is he saying that, and how did they translate it? How did they understand it? But all these, so if, if you take a, so literally in both Pauline lists, the only thing that sounds, that is in the list in Greek that's male is this word husband of one wife, husband of one wife. So if you take this as a checklist, then it's got to be a husband of one wife. If you take this as a character description, this does not become a restrictive male role. So the, the, our next question is, how did the early church interpret this? This is the word, mias uh, gunikos andrea. For all you Greek fans out there, uh, what this literally says is one woman man. And andrea is the generic for, it also can be mankind. Uh, it's not, there are different words for husband and wife for a husband and man, but this is kind of a generic. This is what it says. This is a very common Greek term. Uh, it's idiomatic. It, it's an idiom. It, it actually shows up on gravestones. This person was a, well, as good as Andrea. Meaning, the meaning seems to be, you can say faithful to his wife, or he's a person with fidelity. In this, uh, culture, you've probably heard it preached that it means he can't be polygamous. You were, this is not talking about polygamy. Bottom line, polygamy was not legal in the Roman Empire. 
except for Jews, which I think is really funny. The irony of that, the most non-polygamous people, the only people, because you're allowed to have a Leverite marriage, if your brother's wife, if your brother's died before he had children with his wife, you were allowed to marry her and father children which actually belong to your brother. That's the only people who are allowed to be polygamous for Jews, the most legalistic of all people. No one else in the Roman Empire is allowed to be polygamy. Polygamy was a crime that threw you in prison. Now, said that, Romans were serial monogamous. It was really easy to get divorced if you're a man. If you're a woman, it's less easy. Uh, so it was not uncommon for men to be serial. They would get married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced. But they only married one at a time. Men also frequently had concubines, girlfriends, whatever you want to call them. Uh, booze? You were their boo? That's the only hit, yeah. So they had, they, they had, it was not unusual they had girlfriends. Uh, and so that uh, this, this phrase here, having fidelity, eliminated that. But a Roman man, especially in the upper classes, all would have girlfriends on the side. That was routine. He would not marry them, so he only had one wife. But it was not unusual. And then the different temples frequently had, depending on which temple you're at, uh, there were temple prostitutes as part of the worship. So it, it was a very different culture than what we lived in. Uh, interesting enough, uh, Augustus Caesar, 18 BC, every woman of childbearing age who became divorced, so it was common enough that Augustus had to pass a law regulating it. Had to be remarried within 18 months. The exception was if you had three or more children. Uh, I don't know, cannot explain the exception. You would think that's the one you really want to get remarried because hey, you got a lot more kids you got to feed. But that was the, the law in Rome. If you got divorced by your husband, you had to get remarried. Because again, property rights and most control ran through the husband. And then also by Roman law, the right to inherit property through a will would deny if you're unmarried, over if you're over 25 and you're man and you're unmarried, you could not inherit your parents' estate. If you're over 60, you couldn't, because they figured you were too old and they wanted to go to someone who's going to control it longer. And for women, it was under 20 and over 50. So you can see in Roman law what they wanted to happen, which is that they wanted women who have childbearing age to be married, because that means you had children, which creates more soldiers, creates more taxpayers. Uh, and polygamy was not legal. So when you read this word, Understand that Paul's not talking about polygamy. He's not talking about you can only be married to one woman at a time. I know a very funny story of teaching Tim Timothy in Africa. Uh, they brought over a preacher from the United States for a week-long revival. Said, we want you to teach First Timothy. Uh, and Titus. Letters to Paul in the mission fields. How you structure church. And he, he was rolling... You know, first night, he was preached. In Africa, church runs three hours. That's if it's a short church. If they're really rolling, they go longer than that. 
And on Sunday morning, it rolls as long as it takes to cook lunch. Because you everyone brings stuff and you throw it in the pot. And then you preach until the ladies who are running the pot give you the high side of the <laughs> That's literally how it works. Uh, and so you better have a good sermon because it may be a lot. Uh, and uh, so he was doing a revival, and so he's preaching first chapter Timothy, first Timothy, nobody comes forward, which is a failure in a revival. You're a preacher, that's a failure. Uh, second night, second, ten, second chapter Timothy, fired up about women's role in the church, it's Africa. What's the women's role in the church? Cooking lunch. They're not concerned about a woman shall be silent because they're going, yeah, okay. <laughs> Good. That's the way we are all the time. Nobody comes forward. Third night, qualifications of elders. He's going like, this is the most boring part of Timothy. Deacons and elders. Preaches it. 60 women come forward. He's going, yeah, I'm, I'm the man now. I got 60 people coming forward. Of course, they don't speak English, they speak Shewa. Uh, gets a translator. They all want to know the same thing. All right. Since the elder can only be the husband of one wife, which is how he taught it, which one of his, since all our elders are polygamous in Africa, which wife gets to stay in the household? Is it the oldest wife, the senior wife, or they said, because if, if the women get to choose the senior wife to stay in the household, the younger wives are gone. If it's the man, he's picking the younger wife, and he's kicking all the senior wives out. That was the thing that they, that they got to do. <laughs> and so, uh, by the way, if you go through preacher training in the United States, they never teach you how to handle that situation. Because <laughs> he was like, I have no idea. <laughs> you need to get your elders together to figure that out. So that is, uh, so different cultures have different problems. That's, that was in Africa five years ago. There's still a lot of polygamy. We don't have that big a problem in the United States. I have a question. Yes. So was Rome, uh, was this a Christian kind of mentality that, that you sort of tried to keep this family, I don't even know if you'd call it traditional, but like the sort of one woman, one man, and having children. Was that a Christian influence, or was that just like oh, no, total this, economics this, and this warfare? Pre, this predated Christianity. Okay. Uh, probably 250 B.C., Rome is very, when Rome falls is when the family units fall apart. So Rome is developed around family units and clans. And so, and like I said, we talked about early on, marriages were primarily arranged to strengthen clan relationships. Uh, and so it's, it, a lot of the upper level, we're talking like the top 20%, not the slaves, uh, but the top 20% of the guys who owned all the property, most of their marriages were arranged by their family in order to uh, create relationships between different clans. So it's to keep family structure. So all the laws we look at is to keep family structure strong, it keeps the property together, uh, to keep the economic might of Rome rolling. It seems like it's, uh, it'd be less peaceful if there was polygamy as well, for warring oh, families, etc. Yes, it becomes, because then it's like I'm related to like five different clans, <laughs> Uh, and then when the clans go to war, which side do I back? So it, it's it's much messier. Jim, uh, yes. Have you, have you ever heard of the Roman household duty code? It's it was started yes. er, in in the BC, and it and it kept Rome together. But but there is a 
right about this time, there is a, a, a phrase that comes out, the new Roman woman. And that's the braided hair and the gold. And all. It, the, women are getting their freedom in Rome, and that's kind of, it's bleeding over to the church. Yeah, and the, the richer you get, the freer women get, and the freer the men get, and you end up with more and more problems because you become less religious, less reliant on God's grace, more reliant on your money, and then problems ensue. I'm not saying that America has that issue, but if, if you have ears, let you hear. To quote Jesus. <laughs> All right. So now let, let's look at let's look at culture. Uh, Council of Laodicea, in circa uh, 360. Uh, what happened in 325? Anyone fan of history? Constantine. Constantine. Constantine made the church legal. In fact, he made it more than legal. He made it the official religion of Rome, which meant if you were going to do anything in the Roman hierarchy, you had to become Christian. So on day zero, you were a priest of Jupiter. On day one, you're a priest of Jesus Christ. How much did they have the HR people for their 60 days of indoctrination? Sorry, uh, onboarding? No. You just became, you got a you got a message from your boss, you're priest of Jesus today. This used to be the temple of Jupiter, it's now the temple of Jesus. Uh, you used to worship on Saturdays, you're now on Sundays. Uh, so there was a huge it did not do it did not work well for the church. Because you have all these the church became structured exactly like the temples were. You see priests, you see uh, singers, you see choirs, you see uh, what we would call nuns. Uh, the priest being single rolls in about this time. But anyways, and we ought to see Constantine ends up conquering. He's one of the four sub-emperors. He ends up conquering the whole thing. Con uh, Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, uh, becomes the eastern capital. Rome's the western capital. There's no internet. And so all the churches are now officially churches. Throughout the entire Roman Empire, you're now the churches. What do you teach? There's no, nobody went to school because he literally does this overnight. So they get together in AD 360 and have this council uh, that says, what are rules are we going to teach? They come up with 59 canons. If you read it today, there's 60. They've added the 60 about 100 years later. Uh, basically, how do you maintain a word? Uh, about bishops, clerics, lay people. If you're a heretic, let's keep the Sabbath. What type of liturgical practices, such as only people allowed to sing in church are the choirs. And regular members can't sing in church anymore. Only the choirs can sing. And what can they sing? Another canon. They can only sing the official songbook. That sounds like that sounds like that's our church. Where's <laughs> <laughs> so so instrumental music on this? That's right. With the blue ones. Are you talking about the blue one or the purple one? <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Great songs of the church and what was the other one? Uh, sacred selection. Sacred selection, yes. <laughs> are you a sacred selection church or a great songs of the church? Church. That's Council of Laodicea. Literally, they said, here's the only songs you're allowed to sing. Uh, and then, like, things like, if you're a bishop and the archbishop walks in, you're not allowed to sit. You have, only the archbishop can sit unless he gives you permission. If you're a deacon and the bishop walks in, 
you have to stand up and give him your seat. If you're a deacon and the subdeacon walks in, he has to stand and tell you allow him to sit. It's very, very Roman hierarchical. It's pretty funny when you read some of these. Uh, so, what happens during Lent? Uh, it specifies the biblical canon, which are the official books of the New Testament. Uh, so it specifies all this. All the churches are teaching more or less the same thing. For our purposes, Canon 11. Uh, what they say is, it is, now understand this is written in Greek. And we're tra it's translated to Latin, it's translated to English. It is not allowed for those women who are called elders, presbyters, or priests, or women presidents to be ordained in the churches. So the question when you read about what's, who were elders at the time is, why would they prohibit women from being elders if there weren't some? Now, you'll, you'll see guys argue this, that what they were talking about are deacons, that they're women deacons, and that they're prohibiting women from being deacons, which is not 100% not because what they're talking, they say, well, women can only be head deacons over other women deacons. Does this have anything to do with the women that were brought over from the non-Christian church when it Oh yeah, because, I mean, right, because you have this huge amount of, like, you know, uh, the temple of Artemis, Diana, becomes a Christian temple. All the women, all the priests are women. What do you do with them? And, you know, and that's in this circuit. So you have this huge temple of Diana, which is the, the center of Ephesus. What do you do with all those women priests? Where do they fit in the hierarchy? And you know, do they become uh, what we would consider nuns? And part of what you have to look at is how people interpret this based on where they're at. Are, are, they, are they Catholic in the mid-13, 14, 15th centuries where you have nuns, monks, priests, archbishops? They interpret this to fit their existing church. Or do you go back and look at how the church was? But just understand that's out there. That at some point, there were women presidents of congregations. I... That may be an elder, that may be just a leader. Uh, and that there are also women who are called presbyteries who were running churches. But also understand that you have temples brought over that were women run that now became Christian. So at some point, there were women elders of some amount. And in Laodicea in 360, they say, no more, you can't make any more women elders. Uh, so what that tells you is how the church interpreted Timothy and Titus may have allowed them to appoint women elders depending on their local situation. Uh, yes? The, uh, just as Constantine was converted by his mom, I sort of got the impression that in some communities the early converts were largely women and that some of the earlier churches were it, it may have been eight or ten women that came together, and slowly the men kind of came in. So that, if that is true, that would explain why you had some of the circumstances in which there's no question that women had to be leaders. Right, I, I think that's that's entirely correct. Is that it was it's not the church, early church is not monolithic. It was not Paul went in converted the senior most male Jewish leader, and then everyone else followed him. You know, you see Lydia. 
Priscilla Perkin. She's the first convert in, in Greece. Uh, and then all her household converted with her. That tells you that she's running the household, she's running the business. Uh, she almost assuredly was the leader of the church. Because, well, you know, unlike last week where I said, you know, as we all, we all remember growing up, once the boy was baptized, women couldn't talk for to him. So I, I tell Lydia, who's running this large business, that when her male slave is baptized, he's now in charge of the church. I don't see that happening. So I think Lydia was, in fact, uh, the head of that house church, if you will. Now, understand that we're talking house churches, basically, until 325 is the first time the church has actually had church buildings because they moved it all into Roman temples. So prior to that, the church was basically cellular uh, in house church form. So it's probably less issue. I mean, because you know, growing up, when we go to vacation, our family would have church wherever we were at. Is my mom in charge of that? Yes. Uh, so was she in charge of our house church? It depends how you interpret that. Uh, she, you know, she's the one that laid out, here's where we're meeting. You've been struggling with this issue for a while. For a while, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, she's the one that said, we're having church at 8 o'clock in the morning. Here's what we're studying. Don, here's where you're praying, my dad. Here's where you're praying. Uh, so, I mean, is, is that, you know, headship, leadership? I don't know. Uh, but I know who ran the church, in our house church, when we were on vacation. Uh, and then so now he rolls on telling again who is causing the issues. There are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially among the circumcision group. So again, it's back to the Jews who are being disrupted. And the, a lot of the commentators talk about the fact that the Jews in Crete were probably the men, which is why Paul does not talk about the women like he does in Ephesus. Uh, a, lot, a lot of commentators would say the problem in Ephesus were Jewish women who were teaching stuff they didn't fully understand and disrupting the church. Here, he just says it's, it's a circumcision group. I like this. Teaching things they ought not to teach for the sake of dishonest gain. Because in those days, when you were a teacher, you were expected to be paid. Uh, and so people would pay you for teaching. So I think there were Jews who would say, yeah, Paul told you the truth, let me tell you the entire truth. I'll layer some new stuff on here. Uh, and then he has this nice, interesting statement. One of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This is either a uh, interesting statement, or this is actually a paradox. Because if Cretans are all liars, and the Cretan says Cretans are all liars, <laughs> it's a paradox. Uh, however, there is a, uh, in Greek, there is a verb that's basically what in English we try to create, to creation someone. That means to cheat them. So these guys were known throughout the Greek empire as not being the most uh, epitomes of honesty. Uh, so, the, the, and Paul says, this saying is true. Christians are liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Uh, rebuke them sharply so they will be sound in the faith. And pay no attention to Jewish myths or human commands to those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. 
In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. We're all the way back. This is James, the very first book we studied, right? How do you know someone's a Christian? By how they behave. Uh, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing any good. So Paul is really throwing down his trump card here, saying, if you're a false teacher, you're despicable, you're disobedient, you're, you don't know God, you're unfit for good. You almost could read some, like, anti-Semitism into that. I mean, it just, I don't know. I mean, my... my well, actually, that's how Christians through the ages have justified anti-Semitism yeah. <laughs> in some of these verses. Paul's a Jew. Yeah. <laughs> Remember, Paul's a Jew. Paul is, Paul is a... We discussed this the other night. He is probably still a practicing Jew during this period. Keeping kosher, dressing Jewish doing all the normal things as a practicing Jew. Why he's writing this. So Paul is clear that, so I mean, I, you have a, a, the Jew of Jews writing to the other Jews saying, don't layer your Jewish stuff on these Christians, on these Gentile Christians. And then in here he talks a little bit about teach what is appropriate, teach older men to be temperate, etc. Teach older women in the reverent way to live, and just remember this, when you say women are supposed to be silent, teach older women to teach what is good. So he is telling them you have to teach, but you have to teach the right things. Don't teach Jewish myths. Don't add stuff to what I have taught and what Jesus taught me. Teach the truth. Uh, young men to be self-controlled, back to slaves again. Teach slaves to be subject to the masters and everything. Try to please them. Not to talk back, because there are clearly episodes where Christian owners, Christian slaves, and the slaves are talking back and not doing what the master says. Don't steal from them, but to show them they can be fully trusted so that every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So if your owner is not a Christian and you're a Christian slave, be the best slave you can be in order to convert and to teach your owner about God. That's an interesting concept. Be a slave, but be a really good slave so that your owner can learn about God through your life. Uh, for the grace offers salvation, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage, rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. So he's basically saying, I'm... I'm giving you authority to teach. So that's actually why I think he's an evangelist, not just a pastor. Uh, remind people to be subject to the rulers and authorities. Again, this is Nero. And then avoid, down to the other red, genealogies, arguments, and quarrels about the law. When Paul says the law, he means the Jewish law. It's not the Roman law. Don't get into arguments about what is Judaism and how's that uh, warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. What he means is what we would consider shame. Kick them out until they repent. These are warped and sinful. They are self-content. And then he has his, his usual at the end of the Paul. Uh, I'm sending Artemis and uh, Tychicus, who is the guy who delivered the letter to the Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, another one of Paul's church planners. They're going to come to me 
uh, when they're in there, help Zenus, help Apollo, so obviously going through Crete. Uh, our people must learn to devote themselves to what, doing what is good in order to provide the urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Kind of his wrap-up statement about the book of Titus. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace to you all. End of the letter. So next week, First Peter. And then week after that, we're going to hell. What? We're going to hell. Probably. I mean, in First Peter. Oh, isn't that where he basically says Jesus went to hell? Yeah, we have some discussion about that. <laughs> I'm going to have to back on the deal. That could be a whole week. Yeah. All right. See you next week.